great honor to be here. I, I really wanted to make sure I'd be here on time, and I've been on campus since the 9th of January. That's right. I want to be sure. Patrick Wolf's Settler Colonialism and the Transformation of Anthropology appeared in 1998. His provocation was to look for settler colonialism in the ongoing subjection of indigenous peoples in the settler societies. The contemporary settler polities, he later argued, have been impervious to regime change. It was an Australian-produced response to the consolidation and global spread of postcolonial studies as discourse and method. Quite interestingly, postcolonial studies had also originally been an Australian intellectual export. This call became very influential and inspired the consolidation in subsequent years of settler colonial studies as a distinct scholarly field. Patrick was an unusual scholar, always somewhat at the margins of Australian academia and yet holding at different times fellowships at Harvard and Stanford, he was able to contribute seminally to a variety of fields anthropology, genocide studies, the historiography of race, indigenous studies, and the study of colonialism in period. He was educated in excellent English public schools and was successful in the United States. The cringe, the notion that cultural and other standards are set elsewhere, mainly in Britain or in the US, still fundamentally shapes many aspects of Australian cultural life, but he remained marginal. In his case, the cringe did not apply. He was my teacher, even if never in a formal capacity, but we had significant differences in approach. These differences have been neglected in criticism of settler colonial studies as a scholarly endeavor. We have been lumped together, and it was a great privilege. I'll get to some of these critiques in a minute, but let me first focus on our differences. Basically, in my thinking, settler colonialism was like a waltz, a three-step dance involving settlers, indigenous peoples, and exogenous others. For him, it was like salsa, involving indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. Two is not three. And even though it sounds like a diatribe medieval theology scholars may engage in, it was not a small difference. He regarded all non-indigenous peoples as settlers, and I do not. And there was another fundamental point of dissension. For him, settler colonialism was one type of colonialism. For me, they were antithetical modes of domination. One is not two, the medieval scholasticists again. Our focus was also dissimilar. My interest in settlers and what they do and what they think they're doing, for him, the focus was indigeneity under attack. He had promised that he would respond. I will not enjoy that even greater privilege. He typically proceeded against fashionable scholarly trends. Dialectics and binaries had ceased to be familiar methodological approaches in the social sciences decades before, but they still worked for him. And they worked for those who read his work, and they were many. Similarly, area specialization was not his goal. 
Reframing stubborn problems actually required him to think outside established disciplinary boundaries. As a result, as well as interdisciplinary, his work was eminently and inherently comparative. He was as able to contribute to educating a generation of younger scholars working in a remarkable variety of national settings. Australia, Hawaii, North America, Brazil, and Palestine. This was, in my opinion, his dialectical method. Anything could be better understood by looking at what it wasn't. He believed that the rigorous analysis of a specific topic could shed light on another. That one could understand, for example, the racialization of African-Americans in the US by looking at the dispossession of indigenous peoples. And that one could understand the current dehumanization of indigenous Australians by looking at the ways in which a nascent scholarly discipline had at once proclaimed their humanity and reflected on their alleged failure to reproduce. Surrounding scholarly fields have generally refrained from crafting a response. He may be cited, but he's rarely engaged with, although there are now exceptions to this non-engagement. Jared Sexton, for example, has offered a critical response to, the response to the consolidation of indigenous and settler colonial studies. Sexton is concerned with the ways settler colonial studies and native studies neglect slavery as a problem as much as they neglect abolition in their approaches to decolonization. For native studies, Sexton argues, anti-racism without indigenous leadership is a way for black junior partnership in the settler colonial state. He dismisses this link. There are ways out of settler colonialism other than being, an, than being indigenous or an ally. Abolition, understood flexibly in this context and in an extended way, will liberate all because abolition is not about indigenous sovereignty as opposed to the settler one. But against sovereignty per se, indigenous and settler peoples may be the peoples of sovereignty Sexton argues the peoples of sovereignty, but it is genocide that unites radically different experiences. Genocide is for Sexton inherent to slavery. Enslavement is, after all, the prohibition of enslaved to reproduce as a people. In the context of this analysis, slavery is thus prior to indigenous dispossession. It is an earth dispossession the mother of all dispossession. Sexton concludes, slavery is not a loss that the indigenous self experiences of language, lineage, land, or labor, but rather the loss of any self that could experience such loss. I imagine that this criticism would have prompted Patrick to offer a reply. He would not respond to criticism that misrepresented his work. He did not defend straw men that bore his name but he was keenly aware of the strategic uses his scholarship could be made to work for. I once told Patrick that his work on racializations, not the plural, was recuperating a line of inquiry that was last seen with Colette Guillemin's work in the early 1970s. He took it as a compliment and added a mention to her 1972 essay to his notes. Guillemin had seemingly distinguished between heteroreferential racialization uh, for example, they are black and therefore we are white, um, or we are therefore defined as not them, 
and auto-referential racialization. Uh, for example, uh, we are human, and therefore they are not. Even though she had emphasized, as Patrick Wood, that different ways of constructing racialized alterities are always interwoven and very rarely operate in that pure form. Comparisons in a register of difference and the theoretical implications of this work were central to Patrick's approach. He was suspicious of post-colonial discourse and its assertion of a putative discontinuity with the colonial past. He had been involved in the intellectual milieu that had developed the concept in the 1980s. The Institute for Postcolonial Studies in Melbourne was then an important referent and actively promoted subaltern studies. Patrick had begun his PhD with Greg Denning, a most respected figure of the Melbourne School of Ethnographic History. The anthropologic turn of the 1960s was another Australian intellectual expert. Other contributors to the school were Donna Merwick, Bruce Ayerflex, and Ida Clendenin, but had continued under Dipesh Chakrabarti's guidance. Melbourne provided a very special intellectual environment and in many ways still does. With all due respect for Sydney's empiricism, this was, in Australia, where the thinking was done. <laughs> I should point out that Kassan moved from Sydney to Melbourne. <laughs> but he had moved away from post-colonialism's embrace of hybridity. Many argued that about whether there should be an hyphen separating post and colonialism. In a settler colonial society, he had seen no post. His rejection paralleled Peter Brands and preceded Hain Hazan. Patrick's recuperation of binaries preceded Kiram Healy's parallel and much more recent rejection of Nuance. In fact, Nuance, now forthcoming in a most prestigious sociological journal, Healy concludes that demanding more Nuance typically obstructs the development of theory that is intellectually interesting, empirically generative, or practically successful. He notes, he notes, that academic connoisseurs, and I'm quoting from him, call for the contemplation of complexity almost for its own sake, or remind everyone that things are subtler than they seem. The attractive thing about this move is that it is literally always available to the person who wants to make it. Theory is founded on abstraction. Abstraction means throwing away detail for the sake of a bit of generality. And so things in the world are always more complicated that, for any value of that. Patrick was never constrained by nuance. He would have approved. Largely following Patrick's lead, settler colonial studies consolidated into an autonomous, comparative, scholarly subfield. The scholarly journal of the same name and the emerging literatures that the settler colonial studies blog, that is, me, has monitored since 2010, are a testament to this strengthening. Possibly an indication of its relative success, settler colonial studies as interpretative framework has more recently been the object of sustained critique. This criticism was not coordinated and emerged from quite different scholarly settings. It should be taken seriously. Some straw men here, but not all straw men. I'd like to focus on two examples. In a brief note published in the October 2015 issue of Perspective on History, the professional magazine of the American Historical Association, 
Nancy Shoemaker reminded historians that settler colonialism is only one among many types of colonialism. She identified 12 types. What prompted her reassertion, Shoemaker noted, was that, I'm quoting from her paper, quote from her blog, settler colonial theory has taken over my field, Native American studies, and that settler colonial theory is now dogma. It is. While the content of this reaction is incontrovertible, there are many colonialisms, and yet no one had suggested that this was not the case, the context where this is stated is telling. Separate colonial studies is forcing a redefinition of established disciplinary boundaries. Similarly, but from an entirely different angle, as already noted earlier, Kehaulani Kawanoi, who has worked closely with Patrick, also distinguished in a recent piece between what Patrick actually said and the way his work is used. It is too often asserted. Settler colonial studies and its rapid consolidation can obliterate indigenous presences, she noted before concluding. I'm quoting her words. Settler colonial studies does not, should not, and cannot replace indigenous studies. Using an explicitly warfare and turn of phrase, later Kawanoi added, to exclusively focus on the settler colonial without any meaningful engagement with the indigenous, as has been the case in how Wolf's work has been cited, can reproduce another form of elimination of the native. If Shoemaker was concerned with the ways in which settler colonial theory compromised the position of Native American studies within the historical discipline, but note, this theory cannot be characterized as settler colonial as it remains programmatically critical of the mode of domination that it explores, Kawanoi was concerned with the ways in which the reception of Patrick's work and its routine embrace was compromising the position of indigenous studies within American studies. This concern is now widespread. Kawanoi referred to a paper by Alyosha Goldstein presented at a panel during the 2015 annual meeting of the American Studies Association tellingly entitled The Settler Colonialism Analytic, a Critical Reprisal. Goldstein criticized the ways in which Patrick's project had been reduced to the structure, not the event quick. Kawanoi also cited Robert Warriors and his and this is more I had a growing anxiety, however, that the rise of settler colonial studies has become, not everywhere by any means, but in some circles, an answer to the chronic need for more attention and awareness of Native and Indigenous studies. An attention and awareness that, what it felt, should be fulfilled by Native and Indigenous studies themselves. While Kawana, Kawanoi took care in not blaming Patrick for the citational excesses of his followers, I feel that this apprehension may be unjustified. Unlike the settlers' studies, settler colonial studies does not aim to displace other approaches. Indeed, it is necessarily premised on them. It depends on indigenous scholarship in the same way in which the study of masculinity is dependent on the prior achievements of women's studies and the study of whiteness depended on the prior accomplishments of black studies. The thorough, a determination to not ventriloquize does not, should not, and cannot be seen as elimination. Ventriloquizing was Patrick's term. He was of the opinion that only indigenous scholars should participate in native studies, 
And it is significant that indigenous critiques of Patrick's work should rely on his ideas in order to dismiss his ideas. On the other hand, Shoemaker's search for primacy with imperial and colonial history holding on to subordinate fields is perhaps as unwarranted as Sexton's search for priority. In its diversity, settler colonial studies never suggested that colonialism did not shape the world we live in. And settler and indigenous peoples and the peoples of sovereignty are, sorry, and settler and indigenous peoples are the peoples of sovereignty only in the sense that one sovereignty is asserted as the other is denied. The two dispossessions should profitably be thought as simultaneous. They may ultimately be codependent. One could by the same logic respond that white and black folks are the peoples of embodied property, whereby one's ability to own bodies is asserted precisely because someone else's is denied. Catherine Kellogg's recent reading of Judith Butler and Catherine Malabu's exchange regarding Hegel's phenomenology of spirit compellingly suggests that this possession is necessarily and dialectically structured in two balances. Beyond direct citations, Patrick would have recognized his seminal input. Criticism aside, Patrick's work is truly reshaping scholarly boundaries, especially in the US. The role of Patrick's work in redefining American studies as a discipline was discussed at a roundtable round held at the 2016 meeting of the American Studies Association, a meeting dedicated to the theme of home. The rationale for the roundtable was telling, and I'm reading for the course of papers. A central contention of traces of history is that racialization represents a response to the crisis occasion when colonizers are threatened with the requirement to share social space with the colonizers. The implication of this argument that race and space are inextricable and that racialization results from colonizers being confronted with the threat of having to share social space with the colonized leads to the proposition that race distinguishes those who belong in the national home from those who are deemed out of place. I believe that we should collectively pursue this reprisal. The participant to that roundtable thought the same and engaged in brotherly critical debate. Patrick once confessed to me that he was still a Marxist. I would take it as a compliment, but was surprised. I knew he had read Marx, of course, but I had grown up in, with very, very different Marxists, and he did not quite fit the bill. I'd like to suggest he was a Marxist, especially because of his scholarship and methodology. The referent here was perhaps the young Marx, someone digesting the best that Hegelian traditions could offer and discovering that things are not things in and of themselves, but through relationships. In a sense, he was a Marxist. Dialectical materialism was his method. And he wrote a book about settler colonialists by looking at anthropology and vice versa. And another about the racial formation that follows the emancipation of slaves by looking at its opposite, indigenous assimilation. A parenthesis on what I mean here for dialectics is perhaps water. <coughs> Let me refer to another teacher of mine, Carlo Ginsburg. He once noted that the 
human species tends to represent reality in terms of opposites. The flow of perceptions, in other words, is scanned on the basis of markedly opposing categories. Light and dark, hot and cold, high and low. Ginsburg referred to Heraclitus' motto that reality is a war of opposites, a motto that Hegel retranslated in terms of their dialectical conception to emphasize how dialectics is essential not to construe reality, but to perceive it. Dialectics in this context is needed not to express the way things actually are, but to make them understandable. Likewise, the reason what we may think dialectically is not metaphysical. We think dialectically because of perception, because of aesthetics. Dialectics is thus crucial for heuristics. It is here that I would like to base my claim that Patrick was a great teacher. Dialectics allowed him to make his students, readers, correspondents understand what settlers, bureaucrats, anthropologists, and various racists understood. His ability to explain how people came to think was exceptional. Dialectics allowed him to explain how it was that racism, for example, was primarily about space. That racial distinction was premised on spatial indistinction. In this sense, Patrick's dialectics operated similarly to Edward Said's contrapuntal method and to Ginsburg morphologies. The contrapuntal method was designed to unleash the heuristic potential inherent in relating apparently disconnected ideas, discursive tropes, and structures of reference, while Ginsburg's morphology was an attempt to focus on recursive patterns characterizing seemingly unrelated phenomena. But there's more. Not only Patrick's work is contributing to reshaping scholarly boundaries, it may be useful in rethinking the very notion of boundaries, their utility, and the metaphors that underpin them. The organization of knowledge in academic setting is typically organized in spatial ways. No wonder that academics can be territorial and that they work in specific fields. Um, by the way, I left Italy because I did not want to work in a field. So, I, I, cho I choose an academic field instead. I recommend it. But academics typically relate to their fields not as peasants accessing commons, but as proprietorial settlers exercising their rights of preemption as sanctioned by a particular title, doctor, professor, etc that is associated with a radical right of discovery. It is a Lockean right. I said this first, <laughs> which means I first mix my intellectual labor with this idea. For those who know about the way Locke conceives of property, you will see the, the, the assemblies. Also, I broke new ground and demand recognition in the forms of citations. Some exceptionally good academics are even referred to as pioneers. Said <laughs> incident. Ah. Settler colonialism and its structures of reference may be more hegemonic than we may normally assume. This mode of domination organizes the metaphors we live by, and it is in this context that Patrick's work should be located. 
located, by the way, it's another special metaphor. Gramsci and his lesson about hegemony were never far from Patrick's thinking. And there is a reason why his latest book was called Traces of History. His starting point was always hegemony and the ways it normalizes domination. Against the normalizing effects of settler colonial hegemony, the task was to recover the traces of its history. It was a very political task, but not a narrowly political one. Patrick knew about wars of position. There are scholars that imagine their interlocutors in a Machiavellian way, and there are scholars that imagine them in a Socratic way. They are either informing the prince or their students. There are many other possibilities, of course. Patrick always had a Socratic approach. He was never Machiavellian. This is also why he was at times criticized for not proposing explicitly political solutions. Let me focus again on his books and his dialectics, even though it was in the shorter essay that he was, in my opinion, at his best. Settler colonialism and the transformation of anthropology was ostensibly a history of Australian anthropology. He once told me that the reference to settler colonialism in the title was only added at the very end and at the request of the publisher. <laughs> As far as he was concerned, when he wrote it, settler colonialism as a mode of domination was not even the main focus. And yet, to explain the evolution of this academic field, Patrick defined settler colonialism as a distinct mode of domination. No one had theorized it before and in a systematic way. It was his ability to understand settler colonialism that enabled him to frame the provenance and evolution of anthropology. And it was his knowledge of the ways in which anthropologists were embedded in a particular mode of domination that enabled him to conceptualize settler colonialism. Similarly, Traces of History, which appeared last year, utilizes his analysis of racism under settler colonialism in order to explain racism elsewhere and vice versa. That such an explanatory, that such an explanation actually provides a compelling typology of racial formation is an added bonus. In his last book, Patrick was able to apply the process of formation that leads to the formation of structure. There are traces of history in our terms etymologies too. Racial formation depends on its formation. He identifies three types and reconstructs the specific historical circumstances they develop through. The inassimilable race that follows the emancipation of slaves in the US and of Jews in Europe. The assimilable race that follows the settler colonial conquest of indigenous peoples in Australia and the US. And the repressed race, the literal deracination that follows the transition out of slavery in Brazil and the religious conversion of settler Zionists that enabled the importation of Oriental Jews to Israel and Palestine after 1948. Denial is necessary when a settler colonial project aims at the fragmentation of the non-indigenous, non-settler collective. For example, when the settler project is unable to express a demographic supermajority. They are all vicious racisms. The assimilation of Western Jews that followed the Napoleonic reform could be perceived as almost complete by the end of the 19th century. It was a genuine revolution arising out of another. 
Emancipation is revolution. Emancipation reconstructs the fundamental structure of society. The reactionary response was anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, the word says it, there is an anti in it, is reactionary by definition. What is remarkable, proof that a line of inquiry that begins with settler colonialism as a mode of domination and proceeds to the analysis of racial formation is indeed productive, is that this reaction resulted in a settler colonial project. Zionism was, as Walter Lacour noted and Patrick Seitz, the product of Europe, not of the ghetto. And, I would add, the product of Europe's revolution. The global settler revolution emerged out of another, a point recently made by James Bellage and already made long ago by Louis Hartz. The reverse is also true. Revolution defined itself against reaction and against settler colonialism. And Patrick also refers to Charles Stanford and his remark that for the boom and for the liberal religious Jews, a denial of migration was indeed crucial to their self-definition. Colonialism, but we are talking here about colonization, had been recurrently proposed by colonial advocates like Friedrich Fabry, the father of, Ger of the German colonial movement, as a solution to all of Germany's problems, national, political, economic, demographic, etc. It was an external solution. But German colonialism was fundamentally frustrated. There were only internal solutions left. The final solution was final in both senses of the term. It followed other ones. Patrick's ability to tease out the dialectical tensions pitting emancipation and assimilation is what I believe is his most relevant legacy. They are antithetical solutions and they do not dissolve. Solution and dissolution at the same time. Thinking about solution is in itself somewhat self-defeating. Current debates surrounding the future of Israel-Palestine come to mind. We may be suspicious of all solutions that are presented as full and final. Wolf concludes his book with a genuine call for further exploration and indeed for further struggle. I quote his words. Emancipation and assimilation are not merely distinct. They are strategic alternatives. Emancipation is a way not to assimilate. Where assimilation denies the existence of difference, emancipation preserves liability for it. Assimilation is a type of genocide that follows frontier genocide. The genocidal impulse follows emancipation, which follows genocidal collective social death. We should look at these formations formation. We should recover the traces of history. The definition of settler colonialism, the structure, and the typology of racial formation, the logic, are heuristically compelling and were not even the main point. Or were they? He was my teacher, but he was also my friend. Patrick taught me how to make sure a fire shelter is okay. I mentioned how removed he was from Australian <coughs> academia, but he wasn't removed from the community he lived in. The current Aboriginal community where his neighbors and mentors. 
He was a victim of the 2009 Victorian bushfires. And in succeeding months, we visited often, and my eldest daughter was the first one to dance on top of the cement water tank he had built in front of what would become his new house. New building regulations demanded that a wider clearing be opened before rebuilding. So we worked to clear the land. I worked at settler colonialism with him as well as on it. <laughs> I say all this not to claim privileged access in interpreting his work, but because I would like to emphasize how Patrick's scholarship was especially grand. He was unconcerned with departmental squabbles, metrics, rankings, measurable impacts, workload models, and ERA eligible outputs. The latter thing is an Australian government-led exercise aiming to measure scholarly quality, um, something that I'm sure has a corresponding equivalent in these parts. He took my daughters to rustle water from loggers. Referring again to Granchi, I would like to think of him as what once would have been called an organic intellectual. This still is a compliment. These days, if you want to sell anything wholesome, it must be organic. <laughs> he was organic. He was staunchly organic to his community, if not his class, in a way that was indeed revolutionary. This included an ongoing recognition of the importance of emotions. For him, the scholarly, the political, and the emotional were always intimately intertwined and part of a single whole, which, when I think of it, is as good a definition of integrity as there can be. After losing his house, in a letter that was widely syndicated in the National Australian Press, he had noted, and I read for, from his letter, my house was on five acres of bush outside Hillsville, above Chan Creek. It went up in flames on Saturday. There is nothing left but some unusable steel framing and a cracked concrete slab. Friends, neighbors, family, colleagues, strangers have all been wonderful. Alongside the sadness and the not knowing what's going to happen, their humanity has been truly uplifting. I wasn't impressed, this is Patrick though. I wasn't impressed to see the Prime Minister cuddling a crying man on camera. If he'd come across me while I was crying, I would have resisted his embrace, especially if the media had been present. I don't need a public show of empathy from the Prime Minister. I need him to do something meaningful about climate change so that fewer of us will have to lose our houses, our animals, and each other. His scholarship was adopted globally, but it was irreducibly Australian. It was conceived in relation to Australian developments. Whether it is cited too often or not, Patrick's work is famous principally for two statements. One was about the structure, the other about the logic of settler colonialism. But attention to the specific context in which these statements were developed is necessary. That settler invasion is a structure, not an event, should be contextualized in the 1990s. It was the age of Mako, the period that followed the belated legally sanctioned recognition of native titles' existence in Australia's jurisprudence. Similarly, his contention that settler colonialism is driven by a logic of elimination should be contextualized in the mid-2000s, the age of forced normalization, the age 
that would see the Northern Territory intervention, which was the armed invasion of Aboriginal communities in 2007. A military intervention that required that the government unilaterally suspends the Racial Discrimination Act and ATSIC's executive dissolution. ATSIC being an elected Commonwealth statutory authority representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The former statement was a warning against what Elizabeth Fobinelli would call the cunning of recognition. The latter, a warning against a type of normalization that resembled forced assimilation. Crime fiction novelist Catherine Ed said that if you can't be a good example, then you'll just have to be a horrible warning. <laughs> Patrick focused on crimes that were not fictional and issued two exemplary warnings instead. He was somewhat removed from academia, but never out of touch with the world that surrounded him. And yet, the structure and the logic are somewhat incompatible. One identifies permanence, the other supersession. Some have recognized a focused shift between these approaches, but I'd like to emphasize methodological continuity. Writing in 1990s Australia, when following Mabo and the Native Title Act, many felt a new beginning was possible, he warned against settler appropriations of indigenous struggles. Writing in the mid-2000s, he insisted on the need to prioritize resistance. There is no contradiction here, and the two stances are merely two sides of the same coin. It was the times that had changed. He was planning to work on territorialization, and I was able to read an early draft of his next project. I suspect that he would have relied on his analysis of the ways in which settlers organized their relationship with the land to understand the ways in which other collectives do the same. Understanding settler colonialism as a mode of domination was in his scholarship always an accessory for something else, a means to some other end, one way of understanding a relationship. Like the British who had supposedly set up an empire without really wanting to, I'm referring to 19th century British settler apologist and historian John Robert Seeley, who famously noted, we seem, as it were, to have conquered half the world by a fit of absence of mind. <laughs> this committed anti-imperialist scholar, Patrick, kick-started a scholarly field in a fit of absent-mindedness. Or did he? 